This is a podcast by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Australia. We are a community environmental education and capacity building organisation based in Toowoomba, South East Queensland, Australia. This is a podcast in the series Eco Social Work in Australia. It was produced for Hope Australia in Toowoomba, Queensland, on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Guyabal, Yugara and Waka Waka peoples. Hope pays respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nations people in this country and acknowledges the unique contribution that their cultures make to contemporary Australia. Hello, my name is Andrew Nicholson and I am the producer of the Eco-Social Work in Australia podcast series. For many commentators, eco-social work practice is transformative in its intent and objectives. For example, in regard to the recent call from some of its practitioners for far more ambitious greenhouse gas reduction efforts in Australia and the need to achieve greater environmental justice for marginalised communities impacted disproportionately by the effects of global heating and climate change. Such advocacy is predicated in part on a critique of neoliberal and colonialist economic development models which are accelerating environmental damage and socio-economic inequality around the world. And such advocacy also draws on a broad range of interdisciplinary understandings to help reframe the focus of necessary social work interventions in response to such challenges. The transformative and interdisciplinary elements underpinning mainstream social work practice is a central interest of my next guest, Dr. Dorothy Holscher, a social work academic and trainer with a recent research interest in the social work response to a range of interconnected environmental and social injustice problems, most recently as these have affected some Australian Indigenous communities as they respond to challenges posed by coal mining and river health impacts in their country. In today's interview, we talk about some of this research and its implications for mainstream social work practice. We also talk about another of Dorothy's research interests concerning the ways in which a more critical and transformative focus can be brought into social work training. She cites the work of the influential thinker Nancy Fraser as an important influence on her own practice in this area. So after that very lengthy introduction, Dorothy, a great welcome to you. It's been it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's my absolute pleasure to be here as well. Thank you for including me in the series and hello also to the listeners of this podcast. As is now becoming something of a tradition in this series, let's start the conversation by asking you to give a more comprehensive self-introduction. Perhaps give us some milestones along your professional journey to date. And in that process, can you give us some idea about how you developed your interest in the interconnection between physical environment and social justice concerns and the need to apply a more critical and transformative lens to contemporary social work practice? Well, um, I have a history of practice that actually rests outside of um, environmental social work, um, as it is rooted rather in the field of migration, even though we all understand that the two um, dynamics are very much intertwined, increasingly so. I've lived and worked most of my adult life as a migrant myself, and I suppose in that way I can best describe myself as a nomadic social worker, both literally um, as I I've never quite settled anywhere, but also in the sense of a nomadic subjectivity, as Rosie Bradotti would uh, define it. Um, I've always had an interest in questions of power and justice, with my first research that was for my honours being concerned with processes of political in and exclusion of migrants in local politics in a German city called Dortmund. My master's thesis um, analysed post-apartheid policy changes around the financing of welfare services in South Africa. And finally, my PhD focused on the implications of cross-border migration um, on social work's understanding and conceptualization of social justice. 
Um, none of that is yet about environmental social work, but we will come to that. Um, in the context of my PhD, I became very much convinced of the merits of Nancy Fraser's work for social work. Um, even though her theorizing around social justice at the time, she had not yet begun to touch on the ecological dimension that only really came in the last decade. In terms of my own intellectual development, um, I'm particularly indebted with, uh, to Vivian Bozelek. She was my PhD supervisor, but she also introduced me to a number of philosophers, including Nancy Fraser, whom I greatly um, admire. Um, but also including me in research projects on not just social justice, but post-humanism and post-anthropocentrism, which certainly sensitized me to the problems surrounding um, human sense of exceptionalism and humans' intricate interweaving of their existence in the wider environment, which is far more than just social. So um, when Nancy Fraser started publishing her critique on capitalism and on capitalist crisis and on the role of humans' flawed relationships with non-humans, I was certainly increasingly receptive to the environment aspect of her work than I would have otherwise been. Wow, Dorothy, I'll tell you what, what a CV. Um, that's incredible. And just you know, picking up on the momentum of that, um, I want to continue the interview by asking you to expand a little on that last point you made there, uh, particularly that interest around the interconnection between human relationship to the physical environment and associated social justice concerns. I know one of your recent research explorations has been around a very fascinating topic of what it means for humans to relate responsibly to non-humans, including inanimate beings, inanimate objects particularly within context of environmental crisis. I understand that you and a colleague have researched indigenous ways of knowing and how this can link within a social work context to critical post-humanist and post-anthropocentric framings of social and environmental justice problems. So given the relevance of that area of interdisciplinary research that you've been across fairly recently, uh, and it's also its alignment to eco-social work interests in terms of human physical environment relationships. Can you give us an overview of that research, perhaps its purpose and findings in summary? Yes, a um, couple of things I want to say up front here. Number one, possibly um, research might be a misleading statement to the extent that many of us consider research um, the act of going out, collecting data via interviews or whichever way, taking, bringing it back to wherever we do our work, analyzing it and coming up with something. Um, to the extent that um, we throw the net much wider and much deeper, um, you know, our conversations, our mutual learning, our mutual engagement is, of course, also a form of research because it's it's a kind of deep interrogation. And I think this is really what you um, what you're referring to in that um, in that question. And so here, I want to also acknowledge that I'm really, really indebted to a colleague of mine. Glenn Woods, who himself would not um, denote his own um, understanding as post-anthropocentric or post-humanist, but rather indigenous. Um, so I'm quite indebted to him. And, and so this is probably the best example I can use here. So the work that we're referring to here is something that Len and I produced in conversation between um, my um, understanding of post-anthropocentrism and post-humanism, his understanding of indigenous social work or indigenous practice. And we did so having been invited by Bob Pease and Vivian Bozalik in their very recent and I think this year's edited volume on post-atropocentric social work as an emerging field. Now, what I want to just uh, weave in here is just a quick working definition, this, because these terms are quite a mouthful. Um, so when I talk about post-anthropocentrism and post-humanism, what I mean in a nutshell, really, because there is so many definitions out there, a kind of decentering of Western knowledge and the privileging um, of the position it holds for humans in relation to all other beings. 
and the privileged position it holds among humans for a particular kind of humans. Um, Rosie Bradotti, for example, likes to remind us of the Da Vinci painting of the Vitruvian man. So um, post-humanism is really also about the recentering of marginalized knowledges, marginalized experiences and views and viewpoints brought to the table by raised class, sexualized and gendered people amongst others, more generally also by the descendants of colonized people. So in the paper that I was referring to, um, Glenn and I return to um, a recurrent discussion point between us, which is the relationship between between post-human and post-anthropocentric thought on the one hand and indigenous thinking and practice on the other. Um, my own thinking is mainly, but not exclusively informed by Rosie Bradotti's um, work. Glenn's argument, however, is that none of this is anything new to where he's arguing from, and that is an indigenous Australian perspective. So Glenn says there's nothing new really about post-humanism and anthropocentrism, saying we've done this for tens of thousands of years. It merely, the terminology merely captures the late arrival of Western philosophy and practice, a points of understanding that have been around for so long and simply been subjugated as a result of colonial conquest and then current neo-colonial rule. This is why we called our paper, in fact, the return of the post-human. After that amazingly comprehensive overview, you know, so much of that is is highly topical and relevant um, to eco-social work practice. Ironically, I know that you don't consider yourself to be an eco-social work practitioner as such, but I think so many of, of the points you made there in terms of research is well aligned with an eco-social work lens onto mainstream practice. I mean, just to take that whole area of indigenous knowledges that is gaining so much and rightfully gaining so much prominence, what we can learn from indigenous culture in this country and, and elsewhere in the world in regards to the environmental crisis we're dealing with. So I think, you know, what you're doing is absolutely bang on with regards to eco-social work uh, practice. But coming to that more specifically now, what about some of the um, implications of the findings from your research? <clears throat> You've started to touch upon that in the previous response, but um, what do you think are some of the actual implications for possibly for social work practice in terms of your findings from that research, particularly around that connection between physical environmental concerns, social justice, um, impacts on human well-being of physical environmental degradation, that sort of area. Well, again, I might touch on this um, far too in, uh, indirectly, Andrew, and if I do, just, just pull me back to, to the conversation point. But um, just to say, again, um, I'm really a recent arrival here in Australia, and, and I've done the first baby step in what I hope will really be and remain a lifelong learning curve. But basically, what I have learned from this conversation or work with Glenn is surely one that is uh, to be more mindful of the extent to which my thinking, um, all efforts to the contrary, will probably always remain somewhat Eurocentric. Um, I like to draw back, and Glenn likes to draw me back to Tuck and Yang's seminal piece um, with a riveting title that decolonization is actually not a metaphor. So um, that therefore in Australia, as in so many other places of the world, we need to rem remember that we live on stolen land and that therefore our acknowledgement of country needs to urgently move beyond um, symbolic gestures in social work and beyond, of course. And it needs to entail really a halting and a deep listening and learning from the traditional custodians of the land which we stole. Um, uh, and by we, I mean sort of the historic burden of, of settler culture. Um, my first evident, but hardly the only or last lesson here is the importance of a much deeper appreciation of the inseparability of humans from all other aspects of the environment of which they form part. 
Now, more specifically in social work, this has serious implications for understanding of expertise and for how we approach the question, such as the makeup of our service user base, the relevance of formal Western educational certificates when it comes to intellectual and professional authority, and the extent to which our professional responsibility entails asking respectfully for, receiving and listening to those whom we far too often reify as receivers of services, as problems, as associated with problems, then rather, rather than the providers of help and services, knowledge and understanding. So um, this is, I think, where I found this whole post-human and anthropocentric turn and perspective to particularly help, uh, to be particularly helpful um, in that it in, certainly enabled me to, to engage with conversations such as the one I've had with Glenn and the way I try and be party to that conversation, um, including enabling me to better listen to, appreciate and discern points of connection with indigenous ways of being, knowing and doing things in the world. So basically, in a nutshell, Andrew, I, I suppose I'm skirting around the fact that I don't think I have the answers. What I think I'm, I'm referring to is if we're serious about environmental um, social work, a good point is to let go of, of, uh, an, uh, of a desire for being experts and professional experts, but by sitting down, slowing down, sitting back and actually engaging and listening and learning. So, so to be open to answers that clearly Western knowledge has failed to provide as current living conditions and developing crises would suggest. Yeah, fascinating. And, and I think, you know, always within, in this series, trying to link back, you know, what some might consider a specialist eco-social work take on, on stuff. But in fact, a lot of the principles you talked about there are very much core to traditional mainstream practice. I mean, the ability to be uh, critically aware of your own positioning with regards to clients of any kind in regards to possible power relationships to, to be able to explore the untested assumptions uh, and perhaps as your colleague suggested assumptions that should have been tested a very long time ago and probably have been, but you know, that, that testing has been forgotten or conveniently boxed away, but the critical thinking social worker exploring this stuff, exploring their positioning in regards to a whole series of, of client groups with particular relevance, of course, to indigenous um, culture and indigenous clients uh, or, you know, groupings uh, has particular relevance to that. Before you move on, yeah. I think just to intercept there, um, again, there is probably a little bit of critical reflexivity necessary. Um, a lot of people have asked me, well, what's the big deal about post-humanism? Um, there's nothing really new about it is there. And I think there again, it's, it's important to consider what you just said, that of course, post-humanism is a further development in um, post-anthropocentrism in, in a long traditional, uh, um, in a long tradition. And um, Rosie Bradotti specifically refers to her brand of post-humanism and post-anthropocentrism as critical post-humanism and post-anthropocentrism. So it really stands in the line um, of, of, of a long tradition and we stand on the shoulders of giants in many ways, but it also takes it to, to a new level. Uh, to a new depth and, and, and widens it out to, to include the more than human, the other than human, the beyond human, and, and appreciates that the, um, we're only just beginning to understand the extent to which modesty is required and humility. Fantastic encapsulation there, Dorothy. Um, and just staying with this whole you know theme as it's emerging here of, of you know the importance of critical reflection in any profession come to that but certainly in social work and also the influence of some of the giants if you like some of the the major movers and shakers uh, in terms of theorizing and practice i know another um, current research interest of yours and colleagues is the importance of transformative social work pedagogy that you know has also significant alignments with the principles of social work education and training for eco-social work practice but it but in the mainstream as well and 
And can you give us some insights into some recent, very interesting uh, collaborative research you have conducted around the topic of Nancy Fraser's scholarship, this leading thinker and researcher? And again, point us to the implications, perhaps, of some of the findings from that research for current and future modes of social work training. Of course, um, it's it's a huge topic, and you're quite right. I, I think when it uh, comes to 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 questions more specifically of social justice and and the role, um, amongst others, I've got a couple of favorite theorists, but Nancy Fraser is certainly. Um, at the top um, list of my favorites. So my heart jumps a little bit because I get very excited. So um, Nancy Fraser, I'll, I'll try and unpack that um, as I sort of go through my own experience of learning from her. Um, I would really advocate that Nancy Fraser's work is absolutely useful material to be included from the very beginning in uh, to the social work curriculum. And I say this because given that social justice um, plays such a central role in how we define ourselves as a profession, given that it appears, I think, in literally every um, code of ethics uh, around the world. You know, it, it, it doesn't stop baffling me how little conversation we actually have about what we, what we mean by social justice. And I really think that that um, Nancy Fraser scholarship can be really, really helpful in, in, in making it accessible, simplifying the question, but simplifying it in such a way that we, um, we don't um, disregard complexities. So I've worked with a number of colleagues on Nancy Fraser, including again, Vivian Bozelek, um, um, who is not just a social worker, but also a higher education specialist, and a good friend of mine, Michelino Sembilas, who's an educational philosopher. So um, together in the part we've implied Nancy Fraser within a number of um, contexts, and just to say that Nancy Fraser is actually a political philosopher. So her writing goes beyond social work. And I see one of my roles in terms of scholarship to, to make her um, accessible and usable within social work. So we've applied Nancy Fraser in a couple of contexts and fields of practice, including uh, social work education, but also more specifically, which remains a passion of mine, social work in the context of migration. So um, it's, it's sort of in that um, context that I've become increasingly convinced of the merits of her work. Right. So number one, what I like about her work is that she actually provides us with a fairly simple formula for defining justice, but one that is not at the same time simplistic, but can be applied creatively, as I said earlier. So what she says is that um, for her, the central norm of social justice is participatory parity, or um, in other words, equal participation. So equal participation then becomes the yardstick against which we explore the extent to which particular arrangements are socially just or unjust, as well as measuring um, our practices in the pursuit of justice. So it's it's almost an, an outcome and a process norm. How we go about pursuing social justice can also be measured against the norm of equal participation. And this is Nancy Fraser says, um, because to the extent that people were affected by particular injustices and are subjected to particular rules that enable this injustice, the extent to which they have a voice in relation to it, the extent to which that voice is actually heard and taken seriously, um, it is to this extent that people who suffer the injustice actually have a chance to do something about it. So this is why equal participation is at once a means and an end of justice. So that's the first point. So, so that we actually have a very simple central norm, but that norm can then be used to, to assess the means and ends of what we actually do as social workers. 
So often we only agree vaguely on what constitutes injustice. But the moment we touch on the finer details, the conversation then can derail quite quickly. And the moment we widen out the, the collective of people who have a say, that um, sort of freewheeling character of debates um, becomes uh, even more complex. Nancy Fraser actually calls this abnormal justice. And um, as we, and I think this is important to realize, as we slip deeper into environmental crisis, as we, um, as sort of global heating unfolds, as human beings, as a result, seem to, seem to retreat into tribes rather than really carefully considering collective responsibility, solidarity, and so on. That kind of freewheeling um, character is likely to, to um, um, be exacerbated. So here I've actually found Nancy Fraser's theory to be very helpful because she says that we uh, will enable conversation by actually subdividing justice or injustice into its different dimensions. And she names the economic, the cultural, and she packs into cultural the legal dimension and the political dimension. So she actually, and I do that with students a lot, when they say they have a problem with something and people have a very fine sense of injustice, especially when it affects themselves. But to actually be able to say, look, is your concern an economic concern? Is your concern one of your culture and your identity not being recognized? Is your concern a political one of not being heard? Um, you know, I think then we, we start having a, um, a discussion that becomes more focused. But at the same time, we then also have a springboard for, for considering carefully how do these dimensions interact? So when you don't have money, when you suffer poverty, can you be heard? Um, when you're not recognized and, and your background, colonization, the, the impacts of colonization are not recognized, can we address the economic hardship that uh, you suffer as a result? So then we can really start, first of all, unpacking things, but also then putting them back together. So, so we, we, we are now able to keep an eye on how different um, dimensions intersect. And so Nancy Fraser actually says the different dimensions of just uh, uh, justice are um, not reducible to one another, but at the same time, they're inseparable. Um, so Nancy Fraser then also uh, reminds us, not only do we have different dimensions around the what of justice, what is at stake, but we also um, need to be uh, mindful about who is it um, considered, so in some then, what I could say, bringing it back to the question of environmental crisis, I think um, the environmental crisis, the global heating we're experiencing at this point draws our um, attention to the extent, depth and complexity to which these different dynamics and, and dimensions of just, um, justice interact from the personal at the local right up to the political global level uh, together. Um, and Nancy Fraser then provides us a helpful grid, A, for understanding and B, for figuring out how to respond, begin to respond to social injustice. And this, of course, is important for social work, um, but not just for social work, but for civil society more generally. And for all of us who take our citizenship seriously and continue to believe in emancipation, anti-oppression, and so on. So in that way, Nancy Fraser's work is relevant to how we as social workers think about going about questions of environmental injustice, who is impacted and who gets to have a voice in relation to its causes and impacts and so on. Listening to the way that she's um, analysed, you know, the social justice issue, the various species, if you like, of social justice, the way that is so helpful in exp explicating, you know, around student work and stuff like that. But just to play devil's advocate here a bit, you know, this is a, a show and a series about eco-social practice. You, you've referred several times there, but if I understand this correctly, but correct me if I'm wrong here, Dorothy, Nancy's theory of justice isn't spending so much time on the environmental dimension per se. So I just wonder what you might have to say about that. I mean, you, you've been talking about her excellent um, assessments and tools, if you like, uh, conceptual tools that she's brought to the field. 
but around this aspect of you know person in environment you know part of this whole debate around the the foundational metaphor of social work has been person in social environment the the actual social aspect of this has been assumed it hasn't been really questioned until recently within the eco-social work context um so the, the missing absent, the, the absence, the missing element of the physical environment. It's interesting that if I understand it correctly, as you're talking here, her work hasn't focused so much on the physical environmental dimension. So do you have something to say about that? Yes. Um, in fact, I think I can respond with kind of a two-pronged approach on the one hand, on the other hand. So on the one hand, I do personally think there is a shortcoming of a theory of justice emerging here. Um, I want to say also that Nancy Fraser, in my understanding of her scholarship, um, stopped working on her theory of justice as such, um, or more narrowly, um, after her publication of Scales of Justice in 2009, when she then seemed to have embraced a new project on the crisis of capitalism. So here then comes in the two-pronged approach. So on the theory of justice, I do see a shortcoming. And that is the question of the environmental uh, dimension, because as you correctly say, I agree with you there, um, Andrew, it doesn't appear in its own right. And my previous response suggested that, that again, sort of, I take a very indirect approach to it. Now, I don't know if um, at a later stage, Nancy Fraser plans to um, return to her theory and to adjust it, or whether she would like to um, leave the adding of a fourth dimension, an environmental dimension to her theory of justice to others, or whether she would actually um, say, you know, this is something that that doesn't fit in her theory. Um, if she was to object to such a suggestion that over and above the political, the cultural and legal and economic dimension, we need an environmental dimension of justice. If she was to say she's not keen on that, or she would disagree with that, I'd be very keen on hearing her reasons for that. So this is certainly a debate I would love to be able to have, and who knows? Um, maybe we could invite her for exactly this conversation. Um, Moving on to that, then to the second prong uh, of my response is Nancy Fraser has since moved on to another major um, piece of of scholarship that's really evolving rapidly at this point in time. And, And that scholarship actually does attend to the environmental question. And that is her work on the crisis of capitalism. So she's focused on that over the last 10 or so years. And um, I think, again, her work is actually hugely helpful for my own thinking, sense-making and action, including my teaching, of course. Firstly, um, in her crisis of capitalism, she brings in a time and space dimension into the debate. And she does so by linking in uh, the critique of of capitalism um, and the critique of capitalist expansion with the processes of expropriation, exploitation. Now, um, people who are knowledgeable of Marxist scholarship would say there is nothing new about that. Marx wrote about expropriation and exploitation. But what she does do, um, particularly in her work with um, Yegi as well, is that she says expropriation is not just a precursor to exploitation, but expropriation is an ongoing process that continues to date. So we continue to expropriate people, we expropriate environments, we expropriate by means of mining and so on. And and, um, this helps us then to consider the ongoing uh, impact of colonialism and neocolonialism on current global injustices, including very importantly, um, environmental injustices. So this is really, I think, an important contribution to our conversation at a global scale, but also given um, the Australian landscape and its reliance on expropriation for for its economic model, it's also really got local um, relevance. So linked with that then, um, uh, Nancy in her um, attention um, or renewed attention to capitalism's tendency to externalize costs 
Um, she, she then um, reminds us that capitalism actually functions by excluding, um, externalizing costs and excluding costs from the equation um, of any uh, capitalist calculation and then proceeding as though these costs were never actually borne by anyone or anything. So we extract resources from the environment. They become input factors like the coal in our um, economy, but we actually do not consider the cost of extraction on the environment itself. And that then comes back as a negative feedback loop when we realize actually we can't live like this. So, and, and I think it's because of this tendency of uh, excluding certain aspects and specifically environmental aspects, um, what we spoke earlier about indigenous knowledges from the equation. Um, this is precisely because of this uh, tendency that we are facing the contra uh, contemporary contradictions and that we seem to be unable to resolve at our own and everyone else's peril, by which everyone else, I mean, non-human beings as well. And um, the, the environmental and climate crisis has actually brought this contradiction of externalizing costs to the fore. So I think she makes a good contribution there. But the other thing that she does, and this is actually a very similar model to what she uses in her theory um, of justice, she does not isolate the environmental uh, dimension in her um, thinking about crisis. She sees environmental, um, the environmental dimension as intertwined and interacting with two other dimensions. So according to Nancy Fraser, then there is actually a minimum of three central crisis nodes at the moment that we cannot but consider in conjunction. There's a financial crisis node, there's a crisis of social reproduction and an environmental crisis. And to give some examples that will be close to the heart of many social workers, Australia's housing and homelessness crisis is one such example where the question of land, the behavior of properties as though they were liquid assets and not actually constructs um, on a particular, in a particular place at a particular time. So um, the, the fact that we treat properties as liquid assets, that is linked to the a lack of availability of affordable housing and um, uh, um, homelessness. So there is really um, a, a Gordian knot that we have created here that um, we, we, we need to start breaking apart and untangling. Um, another one is, you know, um, COP26 uh, 26 is an example of this. Um, how on the one end we can say, no, we want to bring the cost, these externalized costs um, down, but we want to, um, in the uh, face of global heating, but we do want to also continue mining coal. All we need is just um, new technologies. So, so, and and um, we've been told this um, by the prime minister very clearly. Um, he wants capitalism to resolve the problem. You can't resolve a problem with its cause, and and I think this is where she um, really helps us. Look, again, really amazing stuff there, Dorothy. I, I mean, look at that very rich smorgasbord of ideas uh, linking to Nancy Fraser's scholarship. I'm just going to take the, the last one simply because I've retained that, um, is the crisis of capitalism sort of thesis she's putting forward. I mean, because to me, again, I, I know I've got a bias in this series. I'm looking at eco-social work practice and eco-social work lens, but there front and center is the connection, the holistic interdependent connection between environment, society and economy in part of a critique. So let's now swing back to your research field, because I, I honestly think, you know, taken as a whole, your research findings uh, support, and I hope you, you uh, feel this is the right way of putting it, support the need and call for a more assertive, interventionist, transformative and critical term within mainstream social work tra training and post-qualifying practice. Whether you call that an eco-social work turn or something else seems to me absolutely crucial. And it seems that your research is pointing to that as well. So. Nonetheless, even though it might be blindingly obvious to the likes of yourself and myself in this discussion, I, I want to, as I do with every guest, ask the 
so what question, the, the play devil's advocate, to ask you why you think the mainstream social work profession in this country and elsewhere should become increasingly involved with the sort of social and physical justice problems and other framings that we've, we've talked about here, the challenges we've been discussing in this interview. Well, to put it simply and bluntly, I would say our survival depends on it. We have to. So, so um, that's the short answer. The long answer is um, that I really believe um, a multi-level, multi-dimensional conceptualization of social justice, as we've discussed today, a renewed critique of capitalist crisis and, and the post-human and post-anthropocentric turn that we've um, also spoken about earlier, clearly demonstrate the folly of trying to isolate certain aspects of our existence, bracket all others, and then claim expertise on those limited areas with disregard, externalizing as it were, um, for all the other dimensions um, that impact what we're trying to do. So obviously I'm not now going to advocate that social workers should now branch out and start getting involved in professional fields of veterinary medicine or marine biology. That's not what I'm after. I completely agree that we do need to delineate from what we do from what we do not do. Um, however, we cannot do so um, disregarding all else and how our particular focus is in fact um, entangled and embedded in complex wider systems. I think that's what I'm after. So um, to do so, I think we need to appreciate the interdisciplinary nature of the unfolding global and environmental crises and how our local context is both implicated in and affected by it. Um, we need to be more critical about the fact that our professionalization is constructed around um, only one particular crisis node, which we just cannot fully understand, let alone respond to in isolation. Um, we need to um, also appreciate that over and above a professionalization, social work must also be seen and see itself as part of wider civil society. And how we adjust that lens when so many social workers are indeed employed by the state, maybe that should form part of the necessary reflection and debate that we should have. Finally, we must never forget, as we said earlier, that social work in Australia operates on stolen land, the traditional custodians of which are still around. And this then takes us back to the conversation that Glenn, Glenn and I have been having in the return of the post-human. The take-home message here is that there will be no well-grounded, and well-grounded I mean in the proverbial and literal sense of the word, there will be no well-grounded environmental social work without us taking a step back in time, halting, and trying to restart with the act of deep listening and learning. Wow, Dorothy, look, I couldn't agree more with your explanation here. I think you've nailed the justification for professional change to the mass, to use a rather disjointed metaphor. So let's now take our what seems to clearly be our shared consensus and apply it to some future thinking. Okay, this is where the guests are allowed to be a bit uh, lateral thinking and uh, creative in their thought process, um, particularly so. I'm a fan of the concept of prefigurative change and using processes such as visioning of preferred futures and backcasting to help develop change strategies um, and, and new narratives of, for progress. So in that light, I ask each of my guests now to think ahead, you know, to actually think about the short to midterm future, say the next two to 10 years, and suggest if possible some steps that link to the ideas that they bring be, have brought forward in the discussion um, some, and possibly some immediate steps in the immediate future. So the next two to 10 years, for you, Dorothy, building on our discussion of your particular research and teaching interests, what do you think the future could hold for a more critical, transformative, uh, interdisciplinary and socially and environmentally just role for the social work profession, uh, the mainstream in Australia over that time period, somewhere around two to 10 years? Look, 
I think if we really make um, analysis and looking back our starting point, I, I must admit that I am a little bit pessimistic because I really think that globally humanity has painted itself into pretty much a tight corner at the moment. And it will be difficult to get out of it, which um, the COP26 uh, negotiations have just shown. Um, so, so part of the crisis of reproduction that I spoke earlier about um, in terms of the three crisis nodes is that there is an insatiable demand for more productivity, including amongst educators and social work practitioners, which um, increasingly seems to amount to squeezing more and more labor out of staff in the face of increasingly deep, intense and uh, complex problems. And this I observe in higher education and much of social work practice, not just in Australia, but worldwide. Returning to um, my role then as a social work educator in, in the question of critical and transformative pedagogies and practices, I think we need to be additionally mindful um, and seek to respond to the realization of how much social problems in the question of human well-being are entwined with wider ecological systems, amongst others, take time in a context where time too has been commodified, this needs then money. So critical transformative pedagogies and practice cost money. And this then is the financial aspect of the crisis, money for education and social services practice is in short supply. Money itself is not in short supply, of course, but for this, it's in short supply. And that might be an opening for change as well. So then as much as I do want, no, I don't want to, but I do feel a bit pessimistic. Um, we cannot afford to. And I think this then is as tried and overused um, a phrase as um, is an important phrase to keep in mind. We need to appreciate that it is especially during crises that new thinking practices will emerge. So paradoxically, then, I would like to suggest that an important mode of resistance is to slow down to make time if there was such a thing and to listen, and I'm returning to an earlier point, and to learn from people with a kind of cultural and environmental knowledge, which arguably might not have brought the globe to its knees as our Western economic, cultural, and political scripts appear to have done at this point. I want to just touch on two more concepts. I'm sorry about that, but I have found these particularly helpful um, in this uh, venture of thinking about everyday practice. And that is her distinction between transformative versus affirmative practice. The former transformative practice is concerned with the deep grammar of society and the environment that generates social injustices in the first place, whereas affirmative practices are concerned with addressing the effects of particular injustices. So bringing this then to the deepening environmental crisis that you are concerned about and that our listeners are concerned about, they re, um, it really makes these two types of interventions and their, rele their relevance evident. So as social workers, we do want to be seen to participate in the kind of civil society advocacy that pushes back against um, environmental destruction that causes suffering in the first place. At the same time, nobody would argue that until such time that we have succeeded, social work doesn't have a key role to play in mitigating the effects of this destruction. And hence, I think it's totally appropriate and needs to continue that social workers are seen at the forefront of crisis intervention in response to environmental disasters. So I think the problem, though, with, with uh, this, this kind of ameliorative action that we're good at and rightfully pride ourselves in, crisis intervention included, I think the problem for social work since its inception has been that we're drawn into ameliorative work at the cost of trying to help attend to deep structural injustices. And this is, I think, where as a profession we've been rightfully criticized 
over and over again um, for contributing to the cementing rather than dismantling of unjust regimes. And I think environmental issues are just a further, if though a particularly large and, and drastic case in point. So that I think continues to need to change and I would like to halt it right here. Well, I think, you know, that's fantastic because it brings us in a full arc back to the, you know, the introductory comments about transformative practice. I mean, you've just given us, uh, again, this very rich collection of ideas. I, I can see, I'm hoping anyway, I see in cyberspace, you know, much furious scribbling down on notepads of uh, listeners to this podcast series because there are so many ideas there. But, you know, again, some of the, the key ones are, you know, contempor contemporary and common to a lot of, um, you know, mainstream and eco-social work ideas and, um, and thoughts and theories. Crisis intervention work, that, you know, specific tool of, of uh, social work. But also, I think, going to the heart of, you know, some of your comments, that contrast, that distinct contrast between radical transformative approaches to work and ameliorative and accommodative accommodative approaches, you know, in other words, tinkering around the edges versus getting in there and going to the root cause of some of these problems, particularly in terms of the environmental crises before uh, looking at crises of capitalism, crises of the lack of democracy, be they what they, be what they may. Look, um, you've really covered the, uh, the full course there, um, Dorothy, and there's so much, such a rich discussion we've had here. Given the idea that, you know, most people actually retain ideas at the beginning or the end of a presentation, I'm going to ask you to just do that sort of take-home message exercise, <clears throat> impossible in some respects to summarise um, in a pithy way all that you've said. But do you have one or two key ideas or, you know, some comments from today that help sum up your particular take on the subject of critical and transformative approaches to social work practice in Australia in 2021 and beyond so that listeners can latch onto those as they go off into their everyday life. Well, Andrew, um, bringing things to a neat and tidy conclusion has never been my strength. Um, I thought you just did that and you did that exceedingly well. <laughs> but if I was um, going to, to um, bring one thing um, to the conclusion here, the one take home message is really going back to um, what we started with halting, listening, learning and appreciating and full cognizance of the, the injustices that we have already meted out on the lands of the worlds, um, listening to the traditional owners of the land. Fantastic. Piffy, succinct, taking time, you know, listening. I'm, I remember just back to my early social work training, you know, a long, long time ago, but in counselling work, Rogerian, you know, empathic listening. I mean, again, a rediscovery perhaps some of these ideas have been around in, in social work somewhere for decades you know got right back to the earliest days certainly the 70s it's just but they're being rediscovered repackaged repurposed and let's hope that you know this is to the to the um to the benefit of the uh, mainstream practice generally dorothy that completes this amazing interview um it's been really energizing to talk with you today i'm sure you've given our audience many valuable ideas which could help inform their own thinking help them start further conversations and collaborations around the subject of transformative social work practice, which systematic, systematically incorporates both social and environmental justice concerns, and have those conversations, as is the intention of this series, with their friends, colleagues, within employing organisations and in their professional associations. But for now, it just remains for me on behalf of Householders Options to Protect the Environment to thank you so much for your participation today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to a podcast episode in the series Eco-Social Work in Australia, produced for Householders' Options to Protect the Environment. Please consult the episode text notes for possible references to topics discussed and relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you've heard. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening.